Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Today on the show, we'll hear from three candidates for the U.S. House who are battling to get media attention. Some of our in-state media needs to remember they need to cover everybody equally and let the voters choose. The Cathedral Home for Children in Laramie is introducing their students to drumming as a coping method. Okay, so we're going to start out with the heartbeat. We'll also learn about how immigrants have helped the economy and why it's easier to peek into the lives of wildlife. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. When U.S. Representative Cynthia Lummis announced that she would not seek re-election this year, some big names in the state stepped forward. But so did a number of others, especially in the Republican Party. But their lack of cash and name recognition has made it difficult to get the same attention as two current office holders and another candidate with a famous last name. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck spoke to three of the lesser-known GOP candidates about the challenges they face as they try to buck the odds despite being out of the limelight. Cheyenne Representative Darren Smith is preparing to shock the state. Smith placed fourth in a recent media poll, which he says is great news since nobody had heard of him in March. Smith is an attorney and a fundraising executive with the Christian Broadcast Network, and he's convinced he's going to win. I really believe, as I look at the numbers that I'm seeing, uh, that uh, there's only two people that can win this race. I believe it's either myself or Liz Cheney that can win. There was an editor that said I'd be lucky to get 5,000 votes in in the general election. And if that's the case, then I've met all 5,000 of the people that are going to vote for me. One of those is Rex Rammel, who was also running for the seat, but he canceled his campaign to support Smith and his conservative values. Smith has made a big deal about cutting spending and has said that if Donald Trump wins the presidential race, he will have a best friend in Darren Smith. Smith says he's had a chance to explain his positions, and he's worked very hard to meet as many people as possible. He's very religious and notes that has resulted in lots of support from the faith community in particular. But the media is a different story. In terms of media attention, yes, sure, there is an establishment here in the state. And they certainly, um, to some degree, want to pick the candidate that they want to represent the state. But I believe that this is the people's seat, and I believe that democracy is not for sale in America. And I don't care how much money you spend. I still believe that the people of Wyoming are smart enough to pick the person that's that's right on the issues, and I believe that's me. Yoder Republican Jason Sentney is a corrections officer and a former Marine who attempted to unseat Representative Lummis the last go-round. He calls himself a blue-collar conservative who wants to change the culture in Washington. He recently made headlines by suggesting that military service should be mandatory. Sentney admits that money limitations make it difficult to reach as many people as he would like. Well, social media-wise, internet-wise, I'm doing a great job. Um, When it comes to the media, I understand some of these newspapers in the state have basically gone with the Liz Cheney show. That's what I've been calling it lately. And the reason... 
they're going for that is they see that advertising money. Sentney says that should not impact the news coverage, but he says it has. Some of our in-state media needs to remember they need to cover everybody equally and let the voters choose. But Sentney adds he's been able to go head-to-head with the other candidates at a number of forums, and he believes that voters see him as a strong candidate because people are tired of business as usual. Being a working-class candidate, somebody who's been right there in the trenches of life with people, I understand where most of these people are coming from, living paycheck to paycheck, and wondering sometimes whether they're going to put groceries in the fridge or pay a medical bill. Northwest College English professor Mike Consmo admits it will be tough to win, but he says it is clear he is making an impact. Consmo says when he presents his ideas during debates, other candidates have paid attention. Those ideas have found their way into the debates and into the messages of the other candidates. And so I feel confident that the types of ideas I'm talking about are out there. Those ideas have ranged from investing in Wyoming and diversifying the economy to refusing to accept pay increases while in office. Consmo says there is no question that he's gotten a fair shake during the campaign. If I needed more attention or I wanted more attention, that's up to me. I have not paid attention to their campaigns at all. Um, I'm running the campaign I want to run, and my focus is interacting with constituents and voters and people in our state. That's been my focus, and that has worked really well. Cosmo says he entered the race to improve the job situation for his students. He adds that if his campaign helps bring about change, then it's been a success. All three hope voters learn about all the candidates and then make the best choice. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Moving to energy, Wyoming politics can be influenced by energy issues, but it's nothing like they're seeing in Colorado. Millions of dollars are being spent in a fight over two controversial ballot initiatives. Taken together, they would seriously restrict oil and gas development in Colorado. Opposing campaigns, infused with this fresh flow of cash, are all about one thing right now, signatures gathering enough of them to get these initiatives on the November ballot or stopping that from happening. Signatures for these proposed ballot measures are due on Monday. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports. Ma'am, you a Colorado voter? Chris Goodwin walks up and down Boulder's busy Pearl Street Mall all afternoon, repeating himself. You a Colorado voter, sir? Actually in California. California. Goodwin is making $13 an hour collecting signatures for ballot initiative 75 and 78. One would give local governments the authority to regulate development. The other would greatly increase the setback distance. That's the distance between an oil and gas facility and places like schools and parks. Goodwin gets cut off by a lot of no's. Are you folks Colorado voters? We are, but we're not going to stop today. Okay, it'd be just real quick. It's, uh... Then Goodwin drops the F word. These are uh, to limit fracking in Colorado. Fracking. It stops Deborah Larrabee in her tracks. But there is, of course, more to these ballot initiatives than the F word. The Colorado Oil and Gas Commission estimates that if the setback measure were to take effect, 90% of surface acreage in Colorado would be off limits to new oil and gas development. Street address there. Deborah Larrabee signs the petitions. For some detail on who's funding the campaigns for and against these petitions. Hello. Hi, Jordan. Inside Energy Data journalist Jordan Werfsbrock has been looking into records filed with Colorado's Secretary of State. 
We start with the environmental groups behind the initiatives. We've seen probably about $500,000 that they've collected so far, and that's mostly from individuals. So just, you know, your regular people. It's actually $424,000 and includes stuff like staff time from groups like Greenpeace and 350.org. The money is going to signature gathering, printing, social media, legal fees, that sort of thing. Now, the opposition, groups like Protect Colorado, the ones trying to keep these issues off the ballot, have collected more than $15 million, mostly from oil and gas companies. So the vast, vast, vast majority is going one place. It's going to this firm, a PR and marketing firm called PacWest. At the tone, please record your message. PacWest didn't return my messages, but Karen Crummy did. Karen Crummy, communications director for Protect Colorado. Protect Colorado has paid PacWest almost $5 million to run its campaign. I mean, it's the same thing that you do in any campaign. It's so it's media, it's polling. I don't care that it'd be disaster for Colorado's economy. It's jobs, TV ads, millions in TV ads from Protect Colorado so far. And, as with the environmental groups, there's a ground game, which includes people dressed up as gigantic pencils as part of a decline-to-sign campaign. We went to downtown Denver to try and talk to them. I saw your signs and your pencil Yeah, costume. we're getting ready, too. We're waiting for our other people that okay. are coming. They didn't want to be interviewed and eventually complained to a nearby police officer. Instead, Karen Crummy explains their message. Read what you're, you're about to sign. Your signature is valuable. So why have these issue committees mobilized such a massive campaign against the two ballot initiatives? This isn't just trying to add a new regulation or something. This would wipe out the whole industry. Are you guys Colorado voters? No. No? Okay. Back in Boulder, gathering signatures with Chris Goodwin. Fracking? Yes. It's hard to hear, but Barbara Tyler says fracking? Absolutely. She lives in Colorado, but is originally from Oklahoma, where oil wells dot the landscape. She worries about the environmental impacts of fracking, which is not directly what's in the ballot initiatives, but that's why she signs. I don't want to destroy stuff. If both initiatives get the requisite number of signatures, Colorado voters will be able to weigh in on the future of oil and gas in November. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Inside Energy is a public media collaborative covering energy issues in Wyoming and the West. When we come back, we'll discuss the lack of Wyoming school funding and revisit a story on wolves. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Thanks to a recent energy boom, Wyoming ranks among the top K-12 spenders per student. But as oil and gas prices drop and coal companies declare bankruptcy, the Cowboy State's school funding future is in jeopardy. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports. Join me in helping to keep Gillette strong. More than 100 are gathered at a Friends of Coal rally in the Gillette Auditorium. The event feels part pep rally, part vigil for the region's ailing coal industry. Jonathan Downing of the Wyoming Mining Association has a message for coal miners in the crowd. We wouldn't have the schools in this state but for the taxes that were paid on behalf of your hard work. And for that, every single school in the state of Wyoming in the last 10 years has been built with coal revenues. 
and you ought to congratulate yourselves on that. You can clap too. Coley's bonuses have bankrolled $3 billion in school building, and Wyoming is spending an average of more than $17,000 per student. The national average is less than $12,000. 70% of state revenue comes from production of oil, gas, and Gillette coal. But that revenue is disappearing. Mark Shrum was a technician at the Buckskin coal mine. I was just laid off on March 4th um, for the first time ever in my life, not able to go and find another job. But Shrum doesn't want to leave town. When he moved here nine years ago, his son Jarrett was at the bottom of his class. Now 17, he's a straight-A junior at Campbell County High School. Seventh grader Cody is in his school's gifted and talented program and travels the state for science competitions. You see a lot of money spent on the students from the technology that's present in the classrooms, the nice buildings. It's one of the primary reasons that we're doing everything we can to stay here. The Campbell County School District runs a children's museum and a mental health clinic. Kids can take swim lessons in the district's aquatic center, and the state is funding construction of a brand new high school. And you also see your teachers being paid well, which keeps good teachers here. Like Shrum's wife, Tracy, who's a kindergarten teacher. In the past dozen years, Wyoming's teachers' salaries have risen more than any other states. Rookie teachers earn $43,000 on average, compared to about $36,000 nationwide. Where we're in a tremendous setting, not only for her professionally, but for our kids academically. Unfortunately, we're seeing the first major concerns in my lifetime about the funding for the state of Wyoming and its education. Funding wasn't this good when Shrum himself was a student here in the 80s. But beginning in 1995, the Campbell County School District was lead plaintiff in several Wyoming Supreme Court cases, which told lawmakers to come up with a new model to fund the state's schools adequately and equitably. The Campbell decisions essentially doubled the amount of state resources we were putting into education and in fact some ways more than doubled it. Mary Kay Hill is Governor Matt Mead's policy director. We took on additional responsibilities. Fully funded transportation and special education, which no other state in the nation does. With each court ruling, Wyoming's approach evolved. Schools were funded to provide smaller class sizes and tutors. Hill says none of this would be possible if Wyoming weren't the country's leading coal producer and energy exporter. It has been somewhat serendipitous that as we have had increased legal mandates, we've also seen increased revenue to match our capacity to meet those. It is a great worry to me personally about what we're going to do in the years ahead. Even with all this money put into education, the state remains in the middle of the pack in most measures of academic achievement. Students' ACT and NAEP scores have not risen along with funding. But Campbell County Superintendent Boyd Brown says he's seen improvements in Gillette. Um, over the 28 years I've been in the district, teachers work harder than they've ever worked. They try to give those students as much support and help as they can to get them where they need to go. In March, the legislature cut K-12 funding by more than a percent. So Campbell County and districts across Wyoming are trimming budgets. Brown will cut at least 20 educators and a program that gets elementary school kids active outside. He worries layoffs will drive more students and funding out of town. We sure are uh, feeling a sense of anxiety for all those people that have lost their jobs. To help a little, Brown is reminding struggling families about free and reduced-price lunch applications and the district's mental health clinic. More than 2% of Wyoming workers lost their jobs last year. As the schools cut programs and staff, Mark Shrum's family makes cuts of its own. Got to be very conscious about the money we're spending and what we're doing. 
you know, we've been doing things with amenities that are very nice to have, but you can kind of do without once you once you figure it out again. With no coal jobs in sight, Shram is pursuing a special education master's degree and a teaching credential online. He wants a career that won't go away, and he figures Gillette will always need teachers. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. When a pack of wolves in northwest Wyoming started killing cattle, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did what they promised when they introduced the species 20 years ago. They responded by killing off the wolf pack. The federal agency is in charge of their management while the endangered species status is debated in court. Then, in another instance, a pack killed 19 elk and left them uneaten. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards took a horseback ride in the area to find out what's going on with the wolves there. Everywhere you look on the McNeil elk feed ground west of Bondurant, you see the bones and hides of dead elk. Rancher Steve Robertson says many are left behind from wolf kills. He tells of seeing elk chased by wolves here just this last winter. The steam's boiling off of them, their tongues are hanging out, and then about two weeks later, then all of those elk were killed on the feed ground. And, and the elk, you know, they can't go anyplace. They, they're snowed in, they're trapped. Such a high surplus killing, as they're called, has never been seen before on Wyoming's 22 elk feed grounds. Today, we're taking a ride to get a view of his grazing allotment that borders the feed ground. In just a couple weeks, he'll be releasing thousands of head of cattle into this country. Riding up the ridge, we see lots of wolf tracks. We had a hard rain two days ago, three days ago. These tracks are probably made in that rainstorm. He says he's never had a problem with wolves, but now with so many large packs moving in, his job has gotten harder. Put our cattle where they need to be and go back the next day and the wolves have chased them out of there. So that's you know, a daily effort to try to comply with our permit. Plus, if you're moving your cattle all the time, they don't grow. Robertson says he'd like to see the wolves taken off the endangered species list again, like they were from 2012 to 2014. He says in those days there weren't so many conflicts because hunting kept numbers down, and the Wyoming Game and Fish Department had more people managing them. One was large carnivore biologist Ken Mills. He says what's happening in Bondurant is rare. He shows me a moose jaw from a wolf kill with tooth decay so bad it ate a hole through the bone. Here's another example of what, you know, that's way beyond a root canal. Yeah. (laughs) So you can imagine the pain that that one's dealing with. Pain that ended when a wolf took the moose down. Mills says wolves keep elk herds healthy by killing the diseased. He says it's unknown whether the 19 elk killed were sick, but Hoofrot has killed hundreds of elk on feed grounds recently. But he says either way, there's still a lot of wolves in the area. The goal of the Game and Fish is to manage wolf populations at a level that's low enough to sustain elk populations. And we know what that level generally is, six to seven wolves per thousand elk. At Bondurant, it's 25 wolves for 1,500 elk. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Wolf Coordinator Mike Jimenez says it's not just Bondurant with lots of wolves. It's the highest population in Wyoming in the history of the program. There were over 380 wolves, over 48 packs in Wyoming. Even though originally the state only agreed to manage 100 wolves in 10 packs. Jimenez says the wolves have run out of good mountain habitat and are moving down into ranching country like Bondurant. He says that puts a heavy burden on ranchers. They try to avoid conflicts. They have 
herders, they have riders, they have calving and fenced areas, they use guard dogs. But when the Dell Creek wolves killed over 10 cattle, Jimenez says the Fish and Wildlife Service was forced to use aerial gunning, shooting them from a plane until they stopped preying on cattle. We removed nine of the 16 animals. They do have a den, they do have pups, and there's now probably around six or seven wolves. They've moved away from the livestock, and that's worked really well. Wyoming Game and Fish Chief Game Warden Brian Nesvik says when the state managed wolves, this kind of thing rarely happened. But during that period of time when we had authority, there were less wolves that were shot out of helicopters or airplanes. Nesvik says wolves also didn't bother cattle as much around Bondurant. He says the public outcry over the killing of the Dell Creek wolves shows how divided people still are over wolves. I honestly believe the best way to get folks to embrace wolf populations being on the landscape is through state management. Federal management does not perpetuate a feeling of ownership in this species. It just doesn't. And state management does seem to be working in Montana and Idaho, where wolves were delisted by Congress in 2011. Populations in those states are even higher than Wyoming's, even with trophy hunting. Tim Presso is an attorney with Earth Justice, an environmental group that fought to get Wyoming's wolves relisted. He says the difference between Wyoming and those other states is Wyoming's management plan. Which has this widespread predator zone with unlimited killing. Presso says Wyoming only agreed to protect wolves with limited hunting in the northwest corner of the state. In the other 85 percent of the state, they were classified as predators, like coyotes, and could be killed on sight. I mean, the the United States didn't spend millions of dollars to recover wolves just so that they could all be shot again. The debate over Wyoming's approach to managing wolves continues to be debated in courts. Because of that, there doesn't appear to be a clear path to delisting wolves anytime soon. In the meantime, the wolf populations in Wyoming continue to move south. Riding back along the creek, rancher Steve Robertson brings his horse up short and points. Three gray-white wolves flash in the red willows and then dart up a steep hill. They stop once to look back, and then they're gone. We sit on our horses, watching a long time. Even though it means a greater threat to his cattle, Robertson says it's still always fun to spot wolves. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up on the show, we'll look at the economic impact of immigrants in Wyoming and much more. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. This week, the New American Economy issued a report on the economic impact of immigrants in every state, highlighting the role immigrants play as entrepreneurs. One place where immigrants are starting new companies in Wyoming is the Wyoming Technology Business Center, a business incubator for startups. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports. The Wyoming Technology Business Center is home to 12 startup companies, working in everything from wind technology to water quality control. Glycoback is one of those companies, and its chief research scientist, Christoph Geisler, is giving me a tour of their lab. It's probably one of the most important pieces of equipment, just a big freezer. 
uh, that goes down to temperatures that you can normally only achieve with dry ice to keep the cells stored in. You want to touch it? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that's cold. It's very cold. Hands <laughs> the gloves. Geisler is from Holland, and his company Glycobac does biomedical research. We're making ways so you can make better medicines um, that help people get better, that help people not get sick uh, in ways that are just not available right now. From bugs? From bugs, yeah. The, the cells that we use uh, are from bugs. That is correct. I sat down with Geisler and John Benson, CEO of the Wyoming Technology Business Center, to talk more about what immigrants can bring to Wyoming's economy. I'm John Benson. So you go out to the Silicon Valley, and it's it's diverse, diverse, diverse. I mean, there are just a lot of major companies that have been started by people that were not born in the United States. And um, we did a an entrepreneurship competition um, this last spring uh, here on campus, and um, we had 40 student teams that applied and of the 40 17 of them included an international student and we had 11 semifinalists and six of them are led by international students so you have at the university less than one in 12 that are international students but they represent more than half of the companies that we had apply for this competition several years ago glycobac was the winner of one of these competitions Geisler says he had to change his visa status to stay on and work with the company. Benson says visa issues are common. The visa status is a big deal. If, if they want to stay, then they have to get a different visa status. And at times, in, in, a, in trying to get a job, a lot of private sector employers stay away from that because then you have to go through the H-1B visa status. Glycobac's entire team is made up of immigrants. Geisler from Holland, and his two colleagues from Canada and India. Geisler says international students are essential to universities. We do research that's funded by taxpayer money generally. So the U.S. takes those people, funds their research, funds their education, and then after they're done with their Ph.D. or their master's, they should do everything they can to keep them here. It is against the best interest of the state of Wyoming and the country in general to have people like that here and to tell them, well, you don't have to write visas, so just go home. When you've got people who move from their own country, from their own continent to the U.S., you've got people who are naturally a little bit more entrepreneurial than the general population, if you will, right? You're leaving behind your friends, your family, your home, your culture, everything. So you're coming to the U.S. and everything is new. And if you're willing to do that, I think you're the kind of person who's much more likely to want to start their own company to dive into the deep end rather than just look for a nine-to-five job at some established multinational whatever. Um, Those are the people you've got here and that you want to keep here. The conversation about immigration can feel overwhelming and large, and there's so many different aspects to it. There's a conversation about refugees right now. There's a conversation about illegal immigration. Do you think that entrepreneurialism and the impacts of new jobs and startups and businesses created by immigrants, is that covered enough? Is that talked about enough? So this is my field, and I, and I hear it talked about a lot. And, um, you know, what Christoph, when, he, when Christoph said, gave his views about coming, what, what a person who comes here has to go through, I thought that was just a powerful statement. And I don't know whether we realize that enough 
what it takes for somebody to come here from another country and change their culture, change the culture that they live in, and want to stay here and raise their children here. I agree. If, if you listen to the news right now, especially with the ongoing election cycle, it's all about building walls to keep people out. Um, right now, we've got a lot of people who are highly talented, educated, motivated to come here legally. And there's not a wall, but it's a, a paperwork wall that is keeping them out. Um, those are the people that have a lot to contribute to the U.S. economy, uh, to society in general. I think there should certainly be a focus on those people as well. Yeah, and not just about fear-mongering, but these are people who want to come here and contribute. John Benson is the CEO of Wyoming Technology Business Center, and Christoph Geisler is the chief research scientist of Glycobac, one of the companies being incubated. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. The report from the New American Economy is part of a national campaign to get politicians talking about immigration reform this election season. The Wyoming Humanities Council will facilitate conversations in this state. This week, the University of Wyoming hosted a summer institute for an organization that supports women of color in academia. One of the guest speakers was Sarah Ortegon, artist and former Miss Native American USA. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen had a conversation with Ortegon at the UW Art Museum, where some of her paintings are currently exhibited. I loved waking up to the metal arc in the morning. The birds and even magpies that were around. Um, just the different animals that were around on the reservation next to the river, because my aunt and uncle lived next to the river. I would come and spend my summers on the reservation. My parents had 12 kids, and so they would drop me off with my aunt and uncle, Shirley and George. So I spent a lot of my summers playing in the rivers. Um, I really just enjoyed myself. We would run from the res dogs on our bikes, throw rocks at them. One of my paintings is called The Metal Lark Song. It, on the bottom, it has sound waves uh, that the metal lark would make, and I also beaded the metal lark on the canvas. I started really young. Elementary school, we would have competitions for drawing, and I would win a lot of the time. I kind of felt dorky, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, because I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to be one of the cool sports girls. I chose to use the form of a square canvas because the state of Wyoming is square. And so there are uh, eight 30 by 30 pieces. So I use black and white just because I love painting in black and white. And so um, using the different tones and colors of just the feeling of black and white just totally overwhelms me as an artist. And so I wanted to integrate some color. And so I chose red because I'm enrolled Shoshone and the Shoshone emblem is the rose, which is red. And then I picked yellow because of the Wyoming state flag, the cowboy is yellow. And so I put them all together, black, white, red, and yellow, and that comes out to the um, medicine wheel colors. And there is a buffalo um, population here in Wyoming. and. I know that there has been a really sad um, history of the buffalo being slaughtered. And so one of my main pieces, the biggest piece that I have, is I drew out a, um, a buffalo heart and um, I did it with colored pencil and I printed out 580 um, buffalo hearts 
and that was representing the 565 um, federally recognized tribes, but it's also relating to, you know, the tribes that are not recognized federally. So I did a total of 580, and um, I put them all in a mound, just like the Buffalo Skull Mound um, that happened in Kansas, which is now actually a road, and a lot of people don't know that. And so I just want to bring recognition to our history of what we've overcome, um, but I also want to give it light to where we have come from this far. I just want to be a part of history because I know once I'm gone, my paintings will still survive. That piece was produced by Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen. Ortegon's work will be exhibited at the UW Art Museum now through September 2nd. Many homes or apartments in Wyoming are contaminated by methamphetamine, and if you move into one of those places, you may not know it. It can lead to health problems and be expensive to clean up. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that Wyoming is one of the few states that does not require disclosure of a meth-contaminated home. Sheridan realtor Dan Casey remembers when he first got caught. Casey had a client who had bought a home during a foreclosure sale, and after his client fixed the place up, he tried to resell it. Casey says they were close to a deal when a neighbor stopped by. You got an offer right away on the house, and right during the inspection phase, the potential buyer was walking around, and the neighbor came over and said, oh, the people who used to live here were, were meth users. This is a meth house. Casey and the homeowner were frustrated because it required extensive cleanup. He says local law enforcement and the Department of Family Services both knew that it was potentially contaminated. The, the DFS had been called uh, for drug use. Uh, you know, police department had been called for, for drug use. But these separate parties, uh, governmental parties, were never talking to each other. And this poor, you know, investor got stuck with a contaminated home. Cleanup can cost between five and $15,000. Another former realtor, David Walker, and Casey started a firm called 307 Environmental, which is one of the companies in the state that cleans meth contamination. While meth labs where the drug is cooked cause the greatest problem, Walker and Casey claim that simple meth use can also contaminate a home. Walker says cleanup can take a week. What you have to do is remove anything that's a porous item, like your carpets, the curtains, anything that can absorb the, the meth. We remove all that and then we go back and we do a dry clean and then we do a wet, couple wet cleans on the whole house. And then we also clean the ducting system because even if you clean a house and then you turn the furnace back on, it'll recontaminate a house. Because of cost, some property owners never clean up a home, and sometimes they are left abandoned. That's what happened to a home in a popular area in Cheyenne that's been abandoned for several years. Lovell Representative Elaine Harvey says that there are several such homes all across the state. To have a meth house that is abandoned and doesn't get improved, doesn't get cleaned up, um, it devalues the property all around them. That's why Harvey tried to pass several pieces of legislation to address the issue. The first would have required notification that a piece of property was a former meth house. Harvey says that legislation was defeated because the majority of lawmakers say it's a case of buyer beware. 
Harvey tried to get restitution money from the meth users and some state funds to help landlords pay for cleanup. The landlord is the one that's left holding the bag quite often, um, well, almost 100% of the time. But Harvey says those attempts also failed. The sentiment on the floor as we discussed this was, uh, well, the landlord just needs to be more diligent about who he rents to, and he needs to inspect his property more often to make sure things like this don't happen. Without any legislation, there is no real way for someone to know if they've moved into a meth-contaminated home without testing the home themselves. Harvey worries about unsuspecting families who might move into a contaminated property, especially if they have young children. Cheyenne doctor James Caswell says children crawling around on a carpet that has soaked up chemicals is a concern. And the child could get seriously ill, but that most of the health concerns for healthy adults would come from moving into a place where meth was cooked. You can get respiratory issues, you can get sinus type issues, and that's just from the chemicals being irritating. State epidemiologist Dr. Tracy Murphy says research shows that health effects from a place where meth was either cooked or used can vary. It's probably unlikely a person's going to have a high enough exposure to those chemicals to cause uh, serious health concerns. But, but some of those chemicals with long-term exposure uh, have been shown to cause cancer. So certainly you, you would want the environment to, to be cleaned up. Back in Sheridan, David Walker and Dan Casey of 307 Environmental have spoken with realtors across the state in an effort to get them to test homes for meth contamination prior to a sale. And they have spoken with a local legislator about letting the public know if a home is contaminated. He says this problem should not be left to landlords and realtors to figure out. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. When we come back, we'll wrap up the program by learning about how drumming can help young people overcome traumatic experiences. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. The Cathedral Home for Children just north of Laramie is a boarding school for teens that have had traumatic experiences. Besides providing a safe space, the kids deal with their emotions. This summer, they're trying something new drumming circles. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen joined them for their most recent drum circle. In the middle of the Cathedral Homes campus is a small brick chapel. Inside, a teacher and a couple of community members are putting about 20 chairs into a circle. They unload all kinds of drums, one of which has just been donated, and they don't know much about it. What kind of uh, skin do you think this is, Bill? Animal. Pretty soon, about a dozen teen boys walk in the door. A couple of them look skeptical, while others go straight for the drums sitting in the middle of the room. For some, it is their first drum circle, but at least one has been before and even brought a drum he made himself. I kind of made it out of rubber, twine, a balloon, some tarp, and duct tape. Kind of threw it together and just started playing it, and it sounded cool, so I liked it. The whole idea for a drum circle came from Caroline Brewer, a teacher at the Cathedral Home. She got the idea when she noticed her students tapping on desks and chairs in the classroom. Brewer says she recognized it as a coping mechanism and thought it could be an opportunity to introduce her students to music. 
Brewer has played the violin since she was seven and says music can be a powerful tool. It can be a person's yoga. It can be a person's journaling. It can be something that helps calm and ease and cope and, and speak. There weren't any drums at the school, so Brewer asked her students to get creative and make their own drums, like the one the student brought today. They used recycled materials like flower pots, five-gallon buckets, and duct tape. But there still wasn't anyone to lead the circle, so Brewer asked for help. I reached out into the community to, to see if, if we had someone to, to lead a drum circle, because I don't know anything about percussion. Ended up making a good friend here, Jean Kushnitsky. Kushnitsky has been drumming since a friend introduced her to it 25 years ago. Once I started drumming and could feel that rhythm within my body, uh, it was just amazing. So I've been kind of drumming ever since. Two years ago, Kushnitsky started the community drum circle in Laramie when she wanted to find others to play with. She says she drums when she feels scattered or angry, as it brings her back to a quiet place. One beat that's called the heartbeat, and it's kind of like that, and it... uh, kind of centers us, you know, because that's the first beat we are accustomed to being in the womb, our mother's heartbeat. At the drum circle, the students and the community members sit down in the circle of chairs. Everyone has picked out a drum they'd like to play, but before they begin, each of them goes around the circle and shares their own drumming experience. When my husband died three years ago, I went to my drum. Oh, I never really had experience with drums, but uh, I've always liked music. I mean, I write lyrics, and I rap, and I like to sing, too. But I like to drum just for relaxation and sometimes just for the plain fun of it. And I'm not very musically inclined, so I can do it on a drum or I can on something else. Then they begin. Okay, so we're going to start out with the heartbeat and think about gratitude and thanksgiving. For the next 30 minutes, they take turns starting the beat, each time a different rhythm. They drum sitting, standing, and walking around the circle. Before they wrap up the last rhythm, Kushnitsky reminds them of the heartbeat. That steady rhythm kind of tells us everything's okay and that we're safe. The kids are visibly energized by the drums as they continue to tap on them while they help to pack up the room. The student who made his own drum says he likes playing alone, but he also likes having other people to drum with. I guess it's a lot more fun playing with other people than uh, just by yourself because then you have kind of a beat to go along to and you can kind of influence other people to make a certain beat too. Brewer says this kid's enthusiasm isn't unique. I certainly had kids already ask, well, when's the next drum circle? We want to do it again. The kids leave the chapel and head to their next activity. Brewer says she isn't certain when the next drumming circle will be. In the meantime, the kids will be able to take the drums they made in class back to their dorms to keep the beat going. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen.
Thanks to innovations in camera technology, wildlife biologists are now able to peek into the lives of animals like never before. Now a new book called Candid Creatures, How Camera Traps Reveal the Mysteries of Nature, compiles the best camera trap photos from around the world. I talked with author Roland Hayes, head of the Biodiversity Lab at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Hayes starts our conversation by explaining just what a camera trap is. A camera trap is a pretty simple device, really. It's a waterproof box with a motion sensor and a camera. And so whenever an animal walks by this box, which we strap to a tree, it triggers the motion sensor and uh, the camera takes a picture. And so uh, what has your experience been with camera traps? How did you get involved with making this book? So I, like other scientists, started using camera traps to record these animals, where they live, what they look like, which species live together. But in the process, I've also been getting all these awesome pictures. And so I have on my computer a folder of greatest hits camera trap pictures, and I realized that every other scientist around the world probably had their own greatest hits folder. And so this book was really an effort to try to collect some of these great pictures from around the world and use them to help describe the science and the conservation work that these camera trappers are doing all around the world. Can you give us some examples of some of those photographs that ended up being some of your favorites that ended up in the book? Well, there's one of my favorite stories is this crazy animal called a tyra, which is um, it's kind of a big weasel that lives in the tropics. And scientists had seen it running around with green plantains, like unripe bananas, in its mouth. And they wondered what was going on because nothing could eat them when they're that green. And so uh, they put a camera trap on the, on the plantain tree, and they got the tyra coming and ripping these plantains off before they ripened. And they, what they did was they hit a radio transmitter in the plantain and tracked it, and they found that these tyras were actually burying the plantains and hiding them somewhere so that the monkeys and other animals wouldn't get them at the tree once they ripened and putting them in a place where only they knew where they were, and then once they, they, they did eventually ripen, they would come eat them. So I thought that was a cool example of, of sort of a little mystery that some observant scientist, you know, saw something strange in the woods, uh, made an observation, and then planned an experiment with camera traps to help solve the mystery. Yeah, it seemed like there was several of those types of things in this book where uh, some of these photographs are really solving mysteries or revealing that species are occupying areas that we didn't realize that they were occupying. Can you give me some other examples of, of the ways in which camera traps are really helping us to learn more about wildlife? Yeah, sure. So there is a couple examples of species that were feared to be extinct, like the Sumatran ground cuckoo or the Angolan giant sable antelope that no one had seen in, in some cases, many, many decades with the ground cuckoo since, I think, like 1913 or something. It hadn't been seen. So people were afraid that it was totally extinct. And then they got a camera trap picture of it. And so it showed, you know, just that one picture can show you that something is still alive. Now, I know that these camera traps, the technology has really been evolving over time. Do you mind giving me just a little bit of history of, of where, you know, this type of work started and how technology has revolutionized it? Sure. So camera traps, surprisingly to many people, have been around for over 100 years. And I have in the book a picture of one of the early pioneers of cam camera traps named Frank Chapman, who had, you know, picture the old-timey camera that would have these giant flash bulbs go off. He had that rigged up in the rainforest in Panama with a tripwire. And when a peccary or a tapir or some animal would walk by and trip the, tr the tripwire, it would trigger the camera. And he didn't have electric flashes. Instead, he had 
cakes of magnesium powder that would explode and set off a noise like a small cannon, totally freaking out you know, the animal, I'm sure, but getting these amazing pictures that you can still see today and are actually still useful scientific evidence showing what species lived you know, in this part of Panama in the 1920s. So that's kind of where we started. And as camera technology evolved, then camera trap technology involved. So we moved to 35 millimeter film, electric flashes, auto advance, but really, you know, moving into the digital world was where things really started taking off because you weren't restricted to, you know, 36 exposure roll of film like we used to be, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago. It seems like the weight of all this technology has been reduced as well so that you can get it further out into the wilds. Uh, like you're not having to cart out giant batteries and things like that. It seems like some of those, those types of things have also been innovated as well. Oh, for sure. The power is better. Um, the lithium batteries, batteries are lighter and last longer. The memory cards hold more, you know, pretty much unlimited number of pictures at this point. And now we're starting to get some video, which includes sound, which is super cool because you can start to, um, to, you know, get an extra dimension. You can hear the animal sometimes. Most mammals don't make a lot of noise, but I was just running a camera recently at a fox den and a coyote showed up and was trying to get into the fox den. And you could hear on the video uh, the, the fox barking at him from off screen. So you couldn't see the fox, but you could hear him. And then the coyote goes running off and chasing the fox. So having that little sound sort of added a, an important dimension to the, uh, to the story of what I learned on the camera trap. And so what do you see as far as um, where these innovations maybe are still lacking, where, where this still needs to be improved, you know, in, in the future? Sure. Well, there's two things I think that are on the horizon. One is just tools to help us manage massive amounts of pictures. Because now, you know, we're like, oh, great, we can get a million pictures. But I'm like, oh, no, I've got a million pictures. What do you do with them? So the other thing that I'd love to try would be a 3D camera um, because that would allow us to actually take measurements on the animals. We have been speaking with Roland Kays, the author of Candid Creatures. Thank you so much, Roland, for, for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the program again, and who wouldn't listen to individual segments or catch up on a previous show, you can go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. A great way to never miss a program is to sign up for our podcast via the website or on iTunes. And when you do that, please rate the program. Anna Rader is our web editor. We love great ideas for future shows. You can send them to us through our website. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.